0: this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana suisui Coming up, an international development conference taking place this week looks at navigating uncertain futures. Also,
1: I like working with our banamatu and um, They've got like a nice fruity quality to them.
0: Pacific cocoa is one chocolate factory's magic ingredient. And later, PNG struggle to bring down HIV and TB infection rates. a lot going on in the foreign aid space, according to Peter Rudd from the New Zealand Council for International Development. CID is the umbrella organisation for NGOs working in providing foreign aid, and on Wednesday and Thursday this week, they're holding their annual conference, featuring significant input from overseas, such as the Australian Minister for International Development, Pat Conroy. CID Executive Director Peter Rudd told Don Wiseman it's the first face-to-face meeting in four years. It's
2: really an opportunity for the sector to come together, uh, our members from the international development, humanitarian space uh, and government, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade and other development actors and partners. So we can basically share um, stories, learn from experts in the field, both from in New Zealand and, and internationally and really an opportunity for that shared learning and, and knowledge sharing.
3: Yes, there have been some significant changes in recent years, haven't there? The, the way, for instance, Pacific nations want NGOs to behave around disasters. There's a effort to cooperate a whole lot more and to coordinate activities directly through the government.
2: Yeah, that's right, there is. And obviously, as, as you know, we, you know our, our NGOs do a lot of work particularly in the Pacific, but also uh, in other humanitarian sort of zones, whether it's Ukraine or or Myanmar or the Horn of Africa, which has got a food security issue. Uh, So, yeah, there is a, a localization sort of approach, which has been going for a number of years, and there's probably different stories and iterations of what localization is, but Essentially, it's giving voice to those Pacific nations. So rather than telling them uh, what to do and how to run their programs, actually giving them more of a hand up rather than a hand out. So the NGO sector is very good at that in terms of building partnerships and that and community engagement level, which is so critical, particularly in the Pacific.
3: Funding also has been a factor in the last four or five years. I know a lot of charity organisations have been finding it difficult to convince people to part with their dollars.
2: It's always a challenging space, but it's always quite remarkable, even in the current environment, that New Zealanders and Kiwis are very generous. So the majority of our NGO, international NGOs, we're talking here, still the majority of their funding, which people are often surprised by, comes from mums and dads, families, citizens of New Zealand, which is pretty amazing. They also obviously get some funding through different programs that the foreign affairs runs and other sort of grant programs as well but it's actually that public fundraising which is still strong that being said it's obviously challenging in the current environment you know we're in a cost-of-living crisis, inflation, etc. so that does hamper that fundraising. But, but by all accounts, it's actually seems to be going quite well. Council of International Development run an annual survey of the international development sector in Aotearoa as well, and we'll be releasing data from that in the coming weeks, which will sort of point to where that fundraising, A, what sort of level they're achieving and where that funding is coming from.
3: Well, from the conference, you hope what will emerge...
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great opportunity. We've got my counterpart, Yali Elahoa, who's the director of the Pacific Island organisation for NGOs. So she's coming down from Suva, Fiji to, to come and present in person. And also my counterpart, Mike Purcell, from the Australian Council for International Development, is also coming across from Canberra to join us in Wellington and it's a really great opportunity for that sort of regional approach because we're need to work on similar things but as, as often happens organisations can tend to work in silo and it's really important that we have that discussion and also with the wider membership CID has currently about 90 members and we're growing so by far and away most of those members will be there at the conference so it's really an opportunity to share the best practice and and share what are the latest developments and you're right there's a lot going on <laughs>
0: A chocolate factory in Dunedin is looking to expand its operations and hopes to pour Pacific cacao beans on the map. The chocolate brand Oko sources its cocoa directly from farmers from Vanuatu, Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. Only 1% of the world's cacao was grown in the Pacific region. Alicia Food met with indigenous Maori chocolatier Te ngapaki, from the chocolate brand Oko.
1: All of the the cacao that we're bringing from the Pacific, it's fairly traded um, from the farmers who grow it, right? So for me, it's really important that Indigenous people are paid correctly. I'm Tangata Whenua, um, I'm Māori and um, for me that just really matches my own personal ethics which is why you know it's important. I mean the other thing as well that there's only 1% of the world's cacao is produced in the Pacific so it's it's got a unique flavour compared to some of the other chocolate in the world as well.
4: Talk to me about the flavour of the chocolate. Why is it so special?
1: Yeah, so I mean we're pretty lucky in the Pacific we've got really beautiful climates and, and environment and soils and stuff like that so for example um, I like working with our Vanuatu beans. Um, They've got like a nice fruity quality to them. PNG beans for example um, you know if you sort of think you know and you hear what you sort of imagine PNG like the jungles and and the rugged terrain the beans are a lot more robust as well so you know the beans kind of match their environments to a degree as well and they all taste different depending on the farms too so there's a lot of variance batch to batch.
4: Could you break down kind of where the cacao beans come from and um, that relationship between farmer to the Dunedin operation.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to the locations, so we currently are sourcing our beans from Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands and um, Papua New Guinea. So um, primarily most of our our chocolate that we produce with a PNG base comes from the Markham Valley region. It comes from a number of small different farms and the way it sort of works is they've got representation um, in Papua New Guinea and they make sure that the farmers get a fair cut of, of the bulk sales to you know different different parts of the world, stuff like that. Similarly, um, the same is true with um, Vanuatu and also with the Solomons as well. So um, the Solomon Islands, again, we get it from collectives and, and similarly uh, with our Vanuatu vans as well. So it's all... through ethical channels, basically. It's not the global chocolate cartel sort of deforesting and all of that sort of
4: thing. How do you think the future of the chocolate industry needs to go seeing that sustainability is becoming a lot more important to people?
1: Yeah, so I mean the chocolate industry historically, to to put a blunt spin on it, it's it's been built off the back of slavery um, and predominantly off the backs of Indigenous people throughout the world, Africa, the Pacific and you know um, South and Central America. So we basically have flipped that on its head entirely. Um, the thing that we do that's quite different from other manufacturers, especially more um, commercial manufacturers, they tend to bring in most of their bulk chocolate from um, Europe. And so they've got hands off where the, where the beans are sourced. They've got hands off um, all of the production. For us, it's really important that there's no slavery in our chocolate. So... Even our sugar, um, so you know, like the two key components are cacao beans and sugar and, and chocolate, and they both generally have pretty unethical sources. Our sugar is also fair trade; it comes in from South America. Um, again, the same sort of collective farm um, sort of situation where the growers are, are all paid um, a fair rate. So it's really, really important to the company that every part of this is ethical. You know, from from the moment it's planted to the moment that it's aided.
4: I'm keen to know about the farmers that are based in the three different Pacific nations that you guys source your cow beans from. Do you know much about the farmers and is it a family operation? And what do you think the impact is on Pacific communities who have partnerships with brands like Ocho? How important is it for the economy, for people, for families, that money gets funneled back into the Pacific?
1: Um, it's extremely important for for developing countries and countries that have traditionally been plagued by colonisation and, and problems around those sorts of things. I think it's incredibly important that indigenous people are empowered to actually determine their own future. Um, it shouldn't be up, up to outsiders to sort of determine where those countries go. And I think that making sure that the, the actual farmers themselves get paid a fair amount um, means that they're not reliant on, you know, developed countries, you know, feeding them and establishing schools, etc. Um, they can actually do these things for themselves and they can, they can lead the direction in which those things also go.
4: What's your message to consumers that are really keen to buy a block of chocolate, but are starting to think a little bit more about uh, the the living wage, where their cacao bean is being sourced, Mm -hmm. and the process of that, if they're looking to kind of weigh up their options, what would you suggest?
1: Just be a bit more mindful about where your luxury items and your commodity items are coming from, especially um, things that have traditionally, you know, been coming from what were previously colonies. Um, Usually these things tend to have a fairly unethical backstory if you scratch a little bit deeper. The other thing to consider as well is your food miles. So another good reason to be eating things that are made a little bit closer to home.
0: HIV and tuberculosis infections in Papua New Guinea have soared in the past two years. The civil society group Business for Health, or B4H, which works with businesses to raise awareness, particularly around TB, has expressed deep concern at what it calls the alarming rates of new HIV infections. Director Anne Clark says with education, access to testing and treatment, they felt the peak of the HIV epidemic had passed. She says the latest HIV snapshot from UNAIDS reveals 6,500 new infections, which is a 91% increase from the 2021 report. Ms Clark spoke with Don Wiseman.
5: What we know is that there were more new infections in each year for the last two years than there were when we thought we had the peak of the epidemic in the early 2000s. So what we're seeing is, like with the TV situation, the world was distracted from the conditions that we were confronting before COVID. And I think we're seeing a consequence of all sorts, the complex impact of COVID in a country that, has had an economy that is really struggling, overpopulation in the main cities where HIV tends to be the focus point, and the consequences of a dire state of government.
3: All right. So do we know what's happened with TB levels?
5: Oh, the TB situation is, is in a similar case. We had more deaths last year than we have ever had, even before we had proper medications for TB and PNG.
3: And what is being done about it? (laughs)
5: Um, Our program continues to work with workplaces to create leadership around seeking behaviour that address lack of information and lack of understanding and dealing with very complex issues. And as we've discussed before, TB and HIV are very close friends where we have very high rates of community transmission of TB. Where someone doesn't know their HIV status, the infectious disease that may kill them is tuberculosis. So in workplaces, creating leaders who understand signs and symptoms and who understand the access to free clinical services is not just a global awareness campaign. It's a detailed and careful campaign to get people actually to attend services. What we have here in P is a program called PICT. PICT is a strategy whereby someone who goes to for testing for TB is also offered HIV testing and someone who goes to HIV testing is also offered TB testing. So where we have high community transmission of both of those infections we can try and kill two birds with one stone. Get a, a closer look. Anyone who attends a service will be tested for both issues, so that we can rule out both.
3: Are they being tested for both, or is it uh, is it a personal choice thing?
5: No one can be forced to have an HIV test. So preparing people kindly before they go to a TB test that they will be offered an HIV test is something that you know it is part of the scary process so when people are well informed about the process they are more likely to to agree to be tested so on what we also know about hiv is that the signs and symptoms can be insidious confusing and all of those things so people in a community where health literacy is not high and belief in sorcery and traditional medicine is also high, there's often a reluctance to, to deal with mainstream health services. So our project is dedicated to informing people about the detail of services.
0: An expert on statecraft in and around the Pacific says the whack-a-mole-like approach of the US and its allies to China's efforts in the region could be working against them. Since 2019, when Solomon Islands and Kiribati cut diplomatic ties with Taipei in favour of Beijing, there's been an exponential increase in diplomatic engagement with Pacific countries, mainly driven by the geopolitical contest between the U.S. and its allies and China. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with University of Adelaide Professor of International Security Joanne Wallace, whose team this week updated their story map of the tools of statecraft being deployed by countries in the Pacific. Professor Wallace says the analysis is that a more considered, responsive approach to China's activities would serve Western nations better than their current reactive tendencies.
6: Maybe starting as as you do in your map with uh, just defining for us what is what is statecraft and and how does that apply to what's going on in the Pacific?
7: So statecraft is kind of the word of the the moment in Australia in particular. So we had decided that it was being used by a lot of different people, but we weren't sure that people kind of shared the same understanding about what it meant. So we've come up with our own formulation about what statecraft is, and it's a little bit wordy, so apologies, but it's basically the actions that states take to try to change. And that try is really important because it doesn't necessarily imply that it's successful to try to change their external environment so their region or the or the globe or even just their, their very close environment, the policies or behaviour of target states or actors or other groups, because, of course, we know that influence attempts or attempts to exercise statecraft are not only against nation states, they're also trying to influence individuals or community groups or other actors, and also to try to change the attitudes, the, belief, the beliefs and the opinions of those targets. And that's really important too because that's often a little bit underappreciated when people think about statecraft. They kind of think we've got to analyse what, you know, state A has done to try to change what state B is doing. But they kind of miss that even if you don't necessarily immediately change what state B is doing, if you change the way they see the world, that will have impacts down the down the road. So we try to capture, it's quite a broad definition, but we think it tries to capture all the elements that, that statecraft is trying to achieve.
6: Mm. And, and closely linked to this are the 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 tools of statecraft um probably going over a few few of these that are actually being deployed in the pacific and um um uh, very interested in how effective they they are
7: yeah so the tools of statecraft we define are basically the mechanisms that 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 influencing or statecraft exercising actors try to use now the obvious ones that get a lot of airplay <laughs> we've all heard no doubt are aid loans security assistance, so that might be. I'll say at the moment, policing (laughs) assistance or military assistance. But there's also kind of less obvious, but in many ways, potentially more, you know, equally effective tools such as soft power. So education scholarships. And one of my colleagues here at the University of Adelaide, Priestley Hubru, and a group of Australia Award students have prepared an excellent paper on um, scholarships as a tool of statecraft that your listeners might want to have a look at. Media, the role that the media can play, both state media, so Radio Australia or Radio New Zealand or other actors, but also the role that support to local media can play as a tool of influence. Language training, that's getting quite a lot of um, energy at the moment, um, different language training programs. The churches, um, churches have been a long standing link between certain states, you know, like Australia and New Zealand and the Pacific going right back to missionary times. So, and, you know, you could see missionaries in many ways as early early actors of statecraft. Tourism is another tool, uh, labour mobility. And then you get to the sort of more, more difficult to identify but potentially um, powerful mechanisms such as grey zone activities. So this, these might be misinformation or disinformation campaigns, you know, putting the wrong information out via the media or social media to try to change people's beliefs. So there's a whole kind of toolkit that states are using at the moment. There's been a lot of discussion about, you know, the crowded and complex geopolitics of the Pacific and all the statecraft that's being exercised. But we were sort of thinking to ourselves, no one's actually tried to collate it in one place to get a real sense about what is actually going on. And Hmm. that's what our story map tries to achieve.
6: Going back to your statescraft map, I think one one of the interesting things I, I was looking at was diplomatic missions and who has missions where and we've seen a flurry from the US of reopening embassies and opening new embassies how how um how effective are missions and then who's who's I guess leading in terms of where missions are placed around the region
7: yeah we one of the interesting findings about the mission so Australia Australia is has a, a mission in every Pacific Island forum member country so we are the most present in terms of having a a post in in the most places but new zealand is close behind and as china and the u.s is catching up but one of the interesting things that because we were sort of like well what does having a mission there really mean you know because a mission can be a good thing and a bad thing a mission can be like you've got great diplomats there who are getting out and meeting people and and learning about the country and 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 discussing their own country's policies with the, the country that they're based in but you know diplomats could also be a downside too if they're not (laughs) high-performing so it's it's not you know present and this is one of the things that that we want to discuss in when we, we as we keep working on the story map is it's not quantum that's necessarily as important as quality so you can have a lot of diplomats out there but if they're not effective then you know a few high quality ones might be different but one of the things that we sort of settled on in the in the moment, I mean, this is a this is a living document, so we're still developing, is it? We looked at the social media following of the different missions in the different countries. And I must admit, I was a bit shocked <laughs> how many followers the US missions have compared. Australian missions have relatively high followers, but I was expecting there to be much higher engagement with, say, the Chinese missions, their diplomatic posts on Facebook and Um, much, much lower. The the US was just streets ahead, Um, particularly in Papua New Guinea, so much engagement. Now, that engagement can be for many reasons too. So I don't want to simplify that engagement equals positive view. You might get a lot of engagement in Papua New Guinea at the moment because people are wanting to find out about the Defence Cooperation Agreement, for example. So they might be visiting the US page. So again, engagement doesn't necessarily mean good or bad, but it was just an interesting indicator that um, of the interest, at least, that that that, that Pacific host countries and, and, and populations have in those different missions.
6: Thank you, Tomas. Uh, thank you, John, for Time Blue. And thank, for yeah. thank, thank you for your interest. Yeah. Thank you very
7: much. That's Pacific OAs for today. Don't
0: forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team to Fastway 4.